It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's your funeral, rich men north of Richmond. Two, doing hard things with hard men. The New York City Seal Swim. Three, who is Robert L. Peters? Who's Robin Ware? Who is 67 Stingray? Answer, Joe Biden. It's the Will Kane Podcast on Fox News Podcast. What's up? And welcome to Monday. As always, I hope you will download, rate, and review this podcast wherever you get your audio entertainment, at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. You can watch the Will Kane Podcast on Rumble or on YouTube. And follow me on X, at Will Kane. That's follow me on Twitter, at Will Kane. It's been a week. From New York to Maui to sleepless nights, back to Texas for a 24-hour window with the family, and then to New York to compete in the New York City SEAL Swim. Now, home again, back home in Texas. There's a big week ahead here on the Will Kane Podcast. We have much we need to do. There is a Republican presidential primary debate on Wednesday night. We need to get you ready for that and have reaction in Friday's episode of the Will Came podcast. And I will not, I cannot leave behind Maui. I have more stories to tell you, but as we move forward, I won't just focus on the individuals, on the families, on the victims, on the survivors. Yes, we'll talk about devastation and we will continue to talk about inspiration. Here's a bit of inspiration. The GoFundMe which many of you have contributed toward, has now reached almost $2 million. I will help to ensure that money goes directly to families who have been devastated in Lahaina, who have lost their homes. If you still want to, you can give to that GoFundMe at Help the People of Maui or HelpMauiNow.com. At $2 million, we are approaching not just a number that is nice and round and signifies a nice round number of families we are anticipating we will be able to help. More news on that this week. But we're dangerously close to exceeding the number pledged by the Biden administration, who has pledged $700 per household. At 3,500 households in Lahaina, that's $2.45 million. We are right on their heels, and I would be lying to you if I didn't think or I wouldn't take a little bit of satisfaction in you, the private citizen, you, the Fox News viewer, you, the Will Kane podcast listener, exceeding what's given by the federal government, by Joe Biden. But we will continue to focus on that devastation and that inspiration. But we also have to begin to, as I catch a breather, put on my investigative hat. We still need to learn what happened in Maui, and I will be looking for answers to these kinds of questions going forward. Was it incompetence 
or was it nefarious? If it was incompetence that led to these fires in Maui, was it personal incompetence or was it policy incompetence? And as an extension, importantly, how widespread is the incompetence? Secondarily, what happened to the children? And how many children were lost in the fires? Thirdly, what's happening with relief? Why is it so easy to pony up and provide relief across the globe in places like Ukraine and so hard to provide relief in some place like Lahaina? When will we provide the appropriate relief for the United States of America? And fourth, what happens next in Maui? Who gets the land? How is it developed? What happens to people who call that place home? I'll be looking at all of those questions moving forward this week, as well as updating you on that GoFundMe, as well on our private relief efforts, which you can continue not only by giving to that GoFundMe, but you can, if you would like, buy what I think is a very cool t-shirt or several options at the Shop Forward. Search Lahaina Strong Shop Forward. This is a friend. This is someone who is a contributor who is a participant, a partner in the GoFundMe to give back to the people of Lahaina. And she and her business have created Lahaina Strong, Maui Strong t-shirts. These are shirts that I wore during the New York City seal swim. It was noticed by many viewers and many of America's greatest warriors right there in New York City asking, hey man, how can I get a shirt like that? And the answer is the shop forward. All the proceeds from those shirts, those sweatshirts, those hats, will go to the families devastated in Lahaina. And of course, we're going to get you ready for that Republican primary debate. But let us get started now with story number one. It's your funeral, Richmond, north of Richmond. The song that has taken the internet by storm, and it's anticipated that today, the song that will take over the Billboard charts, Oliver Anthony's, Rich men north of Richmond. This song has been labeled an anthem for the working man, for the forgotten man. This song by Oliver Anthony, a pseudonym, is about people left behind, people suffering from a society full of contradictions, people living in a two-tiered system. It talks about the virtuous those that do right and somehow end up receiving wrong, especially as when compared to those who work the system, whether rich or poor. It's about those that go about living life the way they are told is right and receiving what is wrong as compared to those who do things wrongly and somehow end up right. If you haven't yet heard Rich Men North of Richmond, you should go check it out. It's really good. And I mean that. It's a really good song. This past week, when I had my 24 hours back home in Dallas, I was listening to Sports Talk Radio. Now, I want to say something at the outset. I and many of my friends have listened to Sports Talk Radio in one station in particular for most of our lives. And most of what I'm about to say doesn't come from a place of great animus, but it comes from a place from a sense of betrayal. And if one were wise, they might listen to these words as 
a word of wisdom or a word to the wise. The sports talk station was talking about Oliver Anthony, and the only way they could hear the song and the only way they could discuss it was as to whether or not he was a plant, a fake, whether or not he was astroturfed. They said the song was driven by the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Walsh, that it was an alt-right anthem. They wondered aloud if it had connotations of racism, and they mocked the song and Oliver Anthony himself and his appearance in every possible way, except when it was revealed that he had some songs out there that also talked about weed. And then he got a momentary high five. The entire conversation was unbelievable, in part because they could not believe that people like Anthony could exist. People like Anthony don't exist to them. And that in and of itself I think, proves the point of rich men over rich men. You know, this particular sports talk radio station has been absolutely beloved in Dallas by guys my age, guys older than me and guys younger than me. But it seems to have lost itself over time. And it's not just because it largely holds political views different than my own. Everyone who's ever listened knows the politics of pretty much everybody. You listening to me, those people listening to me on ESPN Radio, when I largely focused on sports, knew where my particular biases lie, what were my opinions. And I was honest about that with the audience. But one of the things that I tried to do in acknowledgement of that, because I think objectivity is a goal. I don't think it's a status. I think it's a target. I don't think it's a location. One of the things I tried to do to put myself in some check or at least show respect to the audience was to invite people on who shared a different opinion. It didn't mean that we had some false kumbaya or that I said, you know what, I'm wrong, you're right. But what it did is it gave voice. It gave acknowledgement that not everyone has to believe as I. But what is... Apropos to this conversation, I think symbolic of something much bigger than sports talk radio in Dallas is that it wasn't that these particular hosts didn't share my opinions or were all of one monolithic opinion, which they are from sunup to sundown, just like almost everybody in mainstream media. And it's not that they still think of themselves as some counterculture rebels when in fact now they are simply straight down the fairway generic stereotypes of a faded counterculture persona from the 1990s. It's not even that. It's that they sneer at the idea of Oliver Anthony. It's that they sneer at people who disagree. It's all too cool. It's all a laugh, bro. It's all Mocking you, but don't you dare ever notice or respond. Don't you dare ever make yourself visible like Oliver Anthony with rich men over Richmond. And see, that's the thing about this song. This song is about the forgotten man. This is about someone that's supposed to be quiet. This is about someone that's not supposed to exist. This type of person isn't cool. This person puts in a hard day's work, works nine to five or more. This type of person does the jobs that keep society running. 
lays asphalt in the street, puts bricks up for homes, works power plants, runs power lines. This type of person is a police officer. This type of person is a firefighter. This type of person is in the military. I'm not here to tell you that I'm one of these people. No, I'm not. I've been very successful in my life and I've done very well. I'm not here to pretend that I am or live a life of salt of the earth. But what I am here to tell you is I don't pretend that these people don't exist. For me, they're not forgotten. Maybe it's because I come from a small town north of Dallas. Maybe it's because I just try not to live in my own small bubble. But I would like to think no matter how firm and passionate my opinions, they don't blind me to the existence of those that disagree or those that are simply different than me. It's like every other thing in society now. Those that claim to believe in science are the most anti-science. Those that claim to believe in anti-racism are the most racist. And those that claim to wear empathy on their sleeve for their fellow man forget the existence of their fellow man. The Forgotten Man was a book written by Amity Schles. It plays off something from the 1930s. What it was like to be the working man under, for example, the administration of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The entire system was set up for those who are very poor or very rich. What that means is you were rewarded for working the system, but you weren't rewarded for doing what you're supposed to do within the system. Do your job, show up, put in a hard day's pay, and succeed in modern America. Oh, yes, of course you can succeed, but every step of the way, you're told that you're not a success story. Instead, you're told you're a story of a burden, that you're racist, that you're deplorable, that you're a listless vessel. Oliver Anthony sings in this song about we've got people in the street without enough to eat, and the obese milking welfare. Lord, if you're 500 pounds, if you're five foot three and you're 300 pounds, taxes ought not pay for your bags of fudge rounds. Pretty amazing lyrics. Pretty outstanding writing. That line, that verse, in and of itself, has created headlines from the likes of The Guardian, The Washington Post, Rolling Stone, suggesting that Oliver Anthony is punching down, that it's a right-wing anthem, that it's mean. What they don't understand is that Oliver Anthony is not punching down at the poor. He's not making fun of the poor. He's writing from the perspective of the working poor. He's not even punching down at welfare recipients. I've had people write me a few notes on social media saying, hey, I've had, at times, to find myself on Snap. It ain't cool to punch down on someone who needs help, who finds themselves on welfare. And I would say that to that. That's not what's being written. That's not what's being said. That's not what's being begrudged by the working man. What is, is the contradiction that you can be on welfare and weigh 300 pounds. If you want to talk about food deserts and how expensive it is to find nutritional foods, we can have that conversation. But please, don't lose the forest for the trees. Don't navel-gaze yourself into not even seeing reality. You and I both know that if you're obese, you don't 
need food supplement, sustenance, taxes to pay for food stamps. It's the same kind of dichotomy. It's the same type of contradiction that makes people mad on the other end of the spectrum. Corporatism, too big to fail. Work in the system so that you never go out of business, that you make a profit in losses and you make a profit in gains. And then the weirdest dichotomy of all, how you can, perhaps best symbolized by the man currently holding office in the White House, how you can do nothing in your life but serve as a politician and largely exit at the end of that career rich. How is it possible that you can be a rich man north of Richmond? The reference to Richmond, Virginia, just north of Richmond, Virginia, of course, Washington, D.C. It's the same, rich or poor. It's a system, a two-tiered system of justice. It's a system that forces homogeneity in culture, monolithic groupthink, enforcement with the cost of your job or social derision, if you don't find yourself within the crowd that is so cool. It is all about, I guess, the people who aren't cool, even if they're wealthy or have done well to do. It's the people who are worthy of derision because they don't have the right opinion. Because they haven't found themselves lockstep within groupthink. It creates the impression with quite obviously a great many Americans that you don't care whether or not they exist. That's not even clear that you know they exist. And perhaps for you and your suburban, not you listening to me, but you broadcasting, you writing headlines, you too cool for school. But for you, who is oh so ever cool, living in your suburban life with a two-income family, generic political views, all the right views on music and movies and television series, you who found just the slightest deviations from culture to still call yourself some faded version of stereotypical counterculture, you who largely now have opinions that would appeal almost exclusively to single white women, you, for you in that life, people like Oliver Anthony don't exist. But they do. Oh, they do. They don't think you know, but I know that you do. It's your funeral, Richmond over Richmond. Keep courting this. Keep dismissing this. Keep pretending it doesn't exist. These people... These forgotten men, black, white, Latino, immigrant, from the Rust Belt, from Ohio, from Michigan, to the West, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, Texas, to the South, Alabama, Georgia, to California, to Hawaii. I saw these forgotten people. In Lahaina, a journalist who covers the surfing industry saw me talking about this last week. He said, spot on, Will. That song easily could have been Rich Men Over in Honolulu in reference to Lahaina and Maui. It's your funeral. Keep pretending these people don't exist. It's your business that will fail. It's your political system that will collapse. It is your society that's unsustainable. History is well documented 
about going down this path, dividing us, dividing us by identity, by race, by gender, by whatever your newest invention is, by your newest trending virtue, divide us so that you feel better about who you are in your bubble. But I promise you, all you will divide ultimately at the end of that rosy road, that red, that yellow brick road, at the end of that road, what you will have divided, I promise you, will be your own business, your own political system, your own society. It will be your funeral, Richmond, north of Richmond. We'll be right back with more of the Will Kane podcast. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Story number two, doing hard things with hard men. So after this hard week, traveling all across the globe, I ended up back in New York City on Saturday morning with an alarm clock that rang at 4.30 a.m. It was time to fulfill my year-old promise. I had to go swim in the Hudson with a bunch of Navy SEALs. Now every year, I believe going into its sixth year, the New York City SEAL Swim is an event that has brought together now something like 70 former and active duty Navy SEALs. And then another 180 Marine Raiders, Marines, NYPD, New York City Fire Department, New Jersey State Troopers, and members from almost every branch, Army, Air Force, Coast Guard, other members of the Navy. It is a group of people, including patriots who did not serve, who want to do something hard with hard men. This New York City SEAL swim is a three-mile swim starting in Liberty State Park in New Jersey. You swim three-quarters of a mile, jumping off a bridge in New Jersey. Actually, let's back up. You start at the Empty Sky Memorial in Liberty State Park, where all the SEALs line up in the two huge slabs of polished concrete or marble standing with a gaping view of where the World Trade Center once stood. The sun comes up almost directly between those two walls, almost directly down that alley, which is filled with seals holding American flags. From there, you join the procession, every single individual, all 250, carrying an American flag on a two and a half mile run down to Liberty State Park, wherein we jump from a bridge into the Hudson. Fins and goggles and a swim buoy to mark every single individual swimmer. Pete Hegseth and I broadcast every step along the way on Fox and Friends that morning. And let me tell you something. I have no dignity nor no privacy left. Basically, I broadcast naked. I mean, I was definitely shirtless and I wore some little short shorts. Not Speedos. You know I'm not above a Speedo. But not Speedos. Sunga Life. A business, by the way, created by Navy SEAL Jeff Gum. Short shorts. And I've been somewhat self-conscious about my skinny legs my entire life. As I age, I get self-conscious about more parts of my body. But no more. No more. Hey, I've bared it all on Fox and Friends. It's almost liberating in some way. Hey, what's left to hide? Pure authenticity. So there was Pete and I 
shirtless on national television for much of the morning. And it's a good rule in life to say, hey, don't go shirtless on national television. I'm certain it would be a rule followed by some of my old colleagues at ESPN like Max Kellerman or Stephen A. Smith. But there's even a better rule. Don't go shirtless on national television surrounded by 50 to 70 Navy SEALs. The context is unflattering. Man, those dudes are ripped and built. Hey, here's some of the observations I had from that day. There is no prototypical Navy SEAL. Short, tall, jacked and thick, svelte and thin, all strong, all strong-willed, but also all strong, forearms, calves. But I'm telling you, all types, pretty boys, and rough characters, every type of Navy SEAL exists out there that day. And almost every one, at least in my age demographic, putting me to shame, as does my co-host who somehow eats McDonald's every Saturday and Sunday morning and stays jacked and pretty fit. But there we were in the park broadcasting with our short shorts. And then it's time to jump into the river. I was assigned a SEAL buddy as um, a swim buddy. He served 29 years in the Navy SEALs. Shane McKenzie, Mac. And as was told to me by Bill Brown, the SEAL organizer of this event, he is a legend. It was awesome hanging out with Mac throughout the morning. He, um, he was clearly the type of SEAL who came prepared. He had a lot of stuff in his swim buoy, including a camera. He got a shot of me and Hegseth in front of the Statue of Liberty in the water. But I will say, I am competitive. So I had to go at times. I'm not bragging, but I had a little more speed than, than old Mac. So I probably broke a cardinal rule and left my swim buddy. But not on the first leg. And the first leg's the hardest. You're swimming straight into the current towards the Statue of Liberty. And I'm going to tell you something. We jumped in and we swam. We are all together. Uh, Hegseth's swim buddy is a guy named Kaj Larson. And he is, you know, built a swimmer. And he's been with Hegseth for several years. In fact, the first year, Hegseth had to be towed. Not a swimmer is Hegseth. But he had to be towed at various times. And he jokes around. And the first year, he grabbed a hold of Kaj's shorts. And it was some of the most intimate moments that two men could two straight men could enjoy as basically Kaj towed Hegseth through the Hudson. So we were about 500 yards into this swim and I was kind of staying with my swim buddy and staying in the vicinity of Hegseth and Kaj. And I, I looked over and I, 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 can't, I feel like I could almost see my man hitting the wall. I mean, he rolled over on his back, held his swim buoy to his chest, did sort of a a back float flutter kick and yelled, Kaj, Kaj. Okay. Where are you, man? All right. Stay by me, Kaj. I know it's a, I know it's a wussy. That wasn't the word he used. I know it's a wussy stroke, but I don't care, man. This is what I got to do for now. My guy had hit the wall and he'd hit the wall way too early. I'd say he'd hit the wall about 500 yards into what was about to be a three-mile swim. And I, I laughed to myself, but I also got a little worried. And then I said to myself, well, what am I going to do? He's got a Navy SEAL there to save his life. So what did I do? Hey, Mac, I got to go. It's harder for me to swim, swim slow. So I went on ahead, and we swam up to the first barge at the Statue of Liberty. We got off, 
And uh, Charlie Arnold from OutKick was there. She was broadcasting as the MC on site for Fox and Friends. And it's a beautiful site. You swim under the Statue of Liberty. It truly is awe-inspiring. It's an amazing thing to experience. This is one of those things that I would say takeaways. Say yes in life. Say yes. Do it. After the event, another Navy SEAL came up to me, recognized us from TV, and he said, hey, man, would you want to do my swim? I have a swim in Tampa Bay. We do it every year. In that swim, you know, uh, you pull a 70-pound rucksack behind you. And he said, no, it gets, it's kind of buoyant. We put some things around it. It's kind of buoyant. And I, and I thought about it. I was like, dang. He goes, hey, Hoist Gracie does it. I said, well, I don't know what that means for me. Are we going to jujitsu in the water? Um, would you want to do it? And I thought to myself, yes. Say yes. On the other side of that yes is life. I don't mean to be like I'm trying to be too profound, but it's life. It means what I mean is as you add it all up at the end, those series of yeses, those things that you've done, that's a life. If you're swimming under the Statue of Liberty thinking about how few people actually get to experience this kind of moment, you're just happy that you said yes. Get up onto the barge and almost slipped and busted my butt. It's so slick outside the carpet on that barge, and there's just dudes everywhere doing 100 push-ups and doing 22 pull-ups. There was about three or four pull-up bars set up, and guys doubled up on a pull-up bar. You do 22 pull-ups to signify the 22 veterans that take their life every day. And that's a big discussion point, a big part of this. It's mental health. It's PTSD. It's finding a new lease on life, a new purpose. And many of these guys have, and they want to help other buddies. One of the guys assigned to me, my personal security detail, Robert Sweetman, he didn't swim with me, but he ran with me. And he was told to do his job as personal security with extreme prejudice. That means lethal force, which they said with a twinkle in their eye, knowing it wasn't necessary. Robert Sweetman has a, a business, which I, I intend to have him on the program here in the future, where he's become somewhat of a sleep Scientist, a sleep expert, talking about the importance of sleep. But his love of learning about sleep, something that I need more of, was inspired by one of his team members who took his own life at the age of 29. Sweetman told me all about, you know, the role of hormones and cortisol in your life, and it changes who you are. When you spiral into PTSD, it's one of the first things you deprive yourself of is good sleep. You use liquor or pills to get yourself to sleep, and you wake up and fill yourself full of caffeine, and you never truly hit natural center. It's a fascinating conversation, something I want to know more about. But the point is he was inspired, like so many of these guys, about the guys they lost after war. That's why you do 22 pull-ups. You do 100 push-ups because it's hard, and it's good to do hard things. From there, you jump off the barge, which, by the way, in and of itself is somewhat salty. I'd say it's a 20-foot drop from the barge to the water. You got your buoy, your fins, your goggles, and if you don't have it all hatches batting down, it all flies up around your neck. I lost my buoy on the first jump, broke, so I had to fashion a tie back to my belt. And that's when Hegseth said, hey, man, I really want to get a picture in the water in front of the Statue of Liberty. It's like, okay, okay. And he said I was really irritated about it because I was tired of losing Okay, I've got a competitive instinct. And I told my swim buddy, hey, man, I'm going to go. Okay, I got to go. So I got after it on that. I took our swim picture, and I got after it. And this time, I will tell you, I mean, I, was, uh, I wasn't one of the first guys in the water, so I was probably mid-pack into the water. So it was a good head start, and then I had to do the picture with Hegseth. I was disappointed as I was good, I don't know, 500 yards away at least, and I saw orange buoys going up the ladder. When you get to the barge, you have to climb a ladder way up the 20 feet up into the 
the flat barge. And man, just like little orange buoys going up the ladder and it's so disheartening. I mean, these Navy SEALs are so much faster than me. And then I saw ahead of me was Bill Brown, the organizer, who I thought coming away from our dial-in swim a month before, I thought I could handle. And there was Bill ahead of me. So I was a little bit, you know, was a little bit irritated. Now my competitive juices were flowing a little more. Banged out my 100 push-ups, my 22 pull-ups, hammered a banana or two in a power bar, maybe put down some body armor, okay? Did a little TV, and that was that's always fun. I mean, we did interviews with guys, again, some of whom lost friends. They wanted to talk about that. Never enough, never got enough guys on TV, never got enough guys honored, never said en- enough names. But you sit there that day, and let me just tell you something for a moment about these guys. It is, look, I've told you before, I wanted to be a Navy SEAL when I was a kid. That, to me, was a superhero, I didn't really want to be Batman or Superman. I kind of want to be a Navy SEAL. I didn't, I'm not telling you I obsessed about it, but I toyed with it. Like in high school, I tried to go to the Naval Academy. The only reason I did is because I was a swimmer, right? And then subsequently a water polo player. So I thought it lent itself to doing that. Apparently it doesn't because I found out afterwards during the speeches that they said all Navy SEALs hate swimming. So I'm not sure what swimming would have done to help me grit out Hell Week. But what I'm getting at, what I'm telling you is, these are heroes. These are personal heroes to me, but these are heroes to America. I've come away from this every time I've been around these types of guys. I told you this. I came away from this same feeling when I went up with Thumper in an F-16 Air Force fighter pilot out of Luke Air Force Base. And we did a training mission where we strafed targets, pulled 9.2 Gs, and then hit the bar afterwards to drink Jeremiah weed. You just come away from that, and it's just awesome to see men at the height of competency. It's the same thing that I felt when I used to visit my dad at the office. My dad was an attorney, and he was good at it. He really was. Man, he could advocate. He could litigate. If I ever got to see my dad in a courtroom or just see him behind a desk talking to clients or opposing counsel, you know, in awe. And yeah, because he was my dad. But also because it's good to see highly competent men. And here, I'm not just seeing pros. I'm seeing elite. Yeah, okay, yeah, they're all in shape. But you know, they're in shape because I'm doing something hard for one day. They've done something hard for their lives, for our country. We rest easily. And indulge in the freedoms protected by hard men out there doing hard things. Make no mistake, these dudes are awesome and kind and fun, but they are dangerous men. And they are America's dangerous men. The reason we can have sports radio hosts that are too cool for school when it comes to the working man or the forgotten man. The reason that we can have political arguments. The reason that we can jet from coast to coast. The reason that we can afford to contribute $2 million to the people of Lahaina is because we live in the greatest country on the face of the planet, enjoying the greatest freedoms, the children, the product, the fruit bearers of the greatest wealth. And all of that is protected by dangerous men in far off places, protecting us from the wolves that stalk around our walls. And they do. Make no mistake, it's so easy when you live within the inner circle of the village to not think there is a wall out there. And on the other side of that wall, there are wolves. There are bad guys. Anyone who's ever experienced crime is disavowed of that innocence. You understand the existence 
of bad guys. And therefore, you learn to appreciate law enforcement. We're also honored on this New York City SEAL swim. Anyone who's ever had a house fire and watched their house burn down or God forsaken in the case of Lahaina, an entire town burn down, understands the sheepdog that is the fireman. But it is so easy when we rest here, so far away, with gigantic oceans, Atlantic and Pacific, between us and most of the wolves. And the only reason we can live in that innocence is because these elite, dangerous men who are ours, who are of, who are for America, patrol the wall. And it is humbling. It's an honor. It's a slight bit of pride to in one moment be around them. In one thing, be associated. In one day, be in their presence. Don't go anywhere. More of the Will Cain podcast right after this. You do this event, let me tell you something. You get one small window, small window, into the high competency of a Navy SEAL. But this day is a lot about fun. So it's a lot of, you know, bro, guys, testosterone, you know, me giving Hexeth a hard time about how long it is taking him to get back in, you know, pushing his back down while he does push-ups better than I do. Doing just four or five more pull-ups than him just to remind him there's a few things in life that where I get to still win. And then we get up to the front of the barge on the final leg and say goodbye to Fox and Friends because the show ends at 10 and the race is not over. Dive in, and I had to say goodbye to my swim buddy Mac one more time. Had to go. The last leg is a mile and a half from Ellis Island. Middle leg's another three-quarters mile from Statue of Liberty to Ellis Island. Last leg from Ellis Island off that barge all the way back to South Cove Marina in Manhattan. It is one mile and a half, and it is the most open water. You cross the Hudson. You have boat traffic in front of you at times, and you go. And I took a wide line. And not only did I race ahead, I was one of the first guys in the water because they, they let us jump off on television, me and Pete. And I took a high line, and there wasn't many people around me. For what it's worth, there was one seal that told us he hit a dead rat that day. He took a stroke and his arm hit a dead rat. I had no such bad luck. Pretty clear as in, you know, brackish green water, but pretty clear waters for me. But I had to go. I wanted to go. And so I'm looking up, man, and I'm seeing orange buoys and they're way over here upstream from me. And they have a better line to South Cove Marina, but I am pushing it. I'm pushing. It. I feel bad. I didn't wait for my swim buddy. I truly do. But uh, I had to go. I had to go. I had to see what I could do. So I pushed it pretty good. Felt pretty good, to be honest. Um, took a bad line. Had to swim up the coast of Manhattan just a little bit. And I don't know officially where I came in on that leg. I don't know. But I definitely think I was top 10%, which is top 20. And I think if I had to bet, I was somewhere between 10 and 15 on that. And here's the thing. As I got out, I met the guys who came in first and third, and they were college swimmers from Providence. So I feel not too bad about my context. But if I do this again next year, look out. Look out. I'm going gunning for the top. They got showers set up right there. You detox. You have some soap. You got to get the Hudson off you. Then we all grab an American flag, and we do another one-mile run from South Cove Marina up to the 9-11 memorial site. It is amazing. There you do another 22 pull-ups and 100 push-ups. There's a few speeches at the end, and then we all grab our American flags and small 
little American flags, and march down to the Remembrance Pond. I'll tell you, on that one-mile run to the 9-11 Memorial, it is touching. It is amazing. You can't help it. There are fire trucks and firemen clapping and cheering along the way. There are citizens, there are people of New York, New Jersey, all around cheering you on. It is people loving America. There's bagpipes playing America the Beautiful. It's just, it's, it's incredible and a reminder that you're not alone, that you're not forgotten, that there are plenty of people that not just love, but understand the United States of America. Bunch of shirtless dudes running through the city. And by the way, it does feel a little odd after a while to constantly be shirtless in downtown Manhattan, especially during especially during all of the speeches. After a while, you realize, hey, man, I haven't had a shirt on for a long time, just marching through the streets of Manhattan. But you need to stop. Take it all in. It's not about you. You see people on the bridges clapping down. You see people everywhere. And then you take your flag and you surround all of these guys, these 250 guys, the Remembrance Pond at the 9-11 Memorial, and place your little flag into one of the names that died that day. Sit there in silent remembrance of all the people that gave their lives for 9-11. This day is about them. It's about the SEALs that were lost in Extortion 17. It's about those that take their lives every day because of what they've already given so much of to this country. Just take a minute and you just take it all in. And then you need to go to O'Hara's Pub and pound some beers with America's elite warriors. I was proud. I was honored. I appreciate Shane McKenzie, Robert Sweetman, Jason Redman, Bill Brown, and so many other dudes hanging out with Ray Care and Jeff Gum. So many other SEALs that day. I appreciate the chance to have been in their presence. If you can, take part in the New York City SEAL Swim. Story number three. Who is Robert L. Peters? Who's Robin Ware? 67 Stingray. That is Joe Biden. James Comer The House Oversight Committee chairman has said he wants from the National Archives all correspondence from the days of vice presidency for Joe Biden on anything that overlapped with his son's activities in Ukraine, including unredacted communications using pseudonyms by Joe Biden. This is something that's been reported on for a better part of two years. The New York Post has been on this as well as several other people. Joe Biden, while as vice president, maintained a private email address to conduct what appears to be as well official business. Those names, 67 Stingray, J.R.B. Ware, Robin Ware, Robert L. Peters. Why does he need a pseudonym? Why did he need private email addresses? What was he talking about in reference to Hunter Biden? And why is the National Archives not playing ball to help investigate the potential corruption of the president of the United States. This story only continues to grow. And as we turn to the presidential debates in these coming weeks and Joe Biden makes his way to Hawaii, this story cannot go away. Joe Biden increasingly looks to have done, or the, cr- the crumbs, the trail is there, to continue to find the business that was done by Joe Biden along with Hunter Biden, that now threatens to compromise the policies, the decisions, and the leaders of the United States of America. This is the kind of thing that, if again, if this were 
Donald Trump using pseudonyms, Carlos Danger at PCI.com, we would be going absolutely bananas. But this has been received, this has received the silent treatment for the better part of two years. This is, this is once again, one of these stories like Russia collusion that everybody's going to pretend either doesn't exist or is real when the truth is the opposite, does exist or is fake. Just all over this with Miranda Devine and the New York Post. Many other people, again, who've been reporting this for two years since October of 2022. A year ago, Senators Ron Johnson and Chuck Grassley asked the White House about Joe Biden's use of non-government email for government business, the transmission of government information to his son, Hunter Biden, in compliance with federal records law, including his daily schedule, sharing that as vice president with Hunter Biden, the National Archivist, Mrs. Deborah Steidel-Wall, has not yet responded with unredacted emails, documents under those pseudonyms. Here's an example. May 26, 2016, an email from Joe Flynn to Joe Biden, a.k.a. Robert Peters, daily schedule Included 8.45 a.m. prep for a 9 a.m. phone call with President Poroshenko. Petro Poroshenko was president of Ukraine at the time. And Hunter Biden was being paid $83,000 a month to sit on a board of a corrupt Ukrainian energy company, Burisma Holdings. And guess who was CC'd on that daily schedule, along with Robert Peters, a.k.a. Joe Biden? Hunter Biden. CC'd on that exact email. There were 10 such emails copied to Hunter between May 18th and June 15th, so one month, of 2016. 67 Stingray, J.R.B. Ware, Robert L. Peters, Robin Ware. Who is that? It's Joe Biden. What did he say? Well, that is what we need to find out. That's what must be investigated. That's what we need to know from the National Archives. All right, that's going to do it for me today here on the Will Kane Podcast. And I will see you again next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.